How many of you might know the three themes in Exodus that help us to define this book and outline this book and that happen to correspond to our experience in salvation? So these come, if you need a hint, from uh, the Heidelberg uh, Catechism. And so what's the first thing that we come to when, when we are uh, in our need, see ourselves in our need? What's the first thing that we experience and realize when we are without Christ? We are in misery. Thank you very much. In the first uh, 12 or so chapters of the book of Exodus are about the misery of the people of God. They're in bondage. They've been in bondage for 430 years. Okay? This is a, you're in misery. But God, but God steps in to do something. And what does he do? What is the key word there? Deliverance. So there's misery that we are in in our sin. We are without hope and without God in this world, is what the Apostle Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. But God, who is rich in mercy, and He is, He came to deliver us. And so that's what we see in the deliverance that comes there in chapter 12 and beyond. But then, what should be our response to that? Gratitude, and we've been going through a, a week of Thanksgiving or eating, and hopefully you have been very thankful and grateful to God for His many and multitude of blessings in our lives. So let's pray as we get back into the book of Exodus and uh, see th this morning what He has for us, and it's a really great section. I hope I can do it some justice, Father. We thank you for your grace to us in our misery. And we thank you for your deliverance through your Son. You have transformed us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your dear Son, the kingdom of light. And Lord, I pray that you will help us, therefore, to walk in the light as he is in the light. And our fellowship, therefore, is with one another and with our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, so, let's see if I can get into this. Now, in, uh, open your Bibles to Exodus 11 and 12. You're going to need that, whether you've got it from a tech standpoint. Um, there's some great programs, by the way, tech-wise. Uh, have your Bible on ESV has their own program you can get. Uh, I use Olive Tree as well as Logos, but Olive Tree is my go-to thing on my phone or my uh, iPad. Speaking of iPads, well, I won't need it at this point. So, so uh, be sure you have that open because I want you to be able to see the verses for yourself and be able to trace some things. We're going to go through a lot of material today, I hope, because we only got this week and next week. And then we are done with Exodus for this particular 12-week series. Um, so last week we were, we were going through the storyline of this, and we saw that we were looking at the events in the ninth plague. It's judgment. It was darkness covered the whole land, except where? Where was the darkness not covered? And Rick's looking at the darkness now in the middle of the room. 
So the darkness was not among the people of Israel, God's people. And there were three stages or themes that we saw in chapters 11 and 12. So we had the end of something. What, what have we come to the end of here? You look up on the screen, by the way. It may help you if you look at point A. The end of God's patience. You know, God, God is patient and long-suffering. But he also, there comes an end to the long-suffering. There was also the beginning of something as the Lord established a memorial. What was it called? Oh, my goodness. What? It, it maybe oh it's actually not up there, is it? Oh, that's why you're not getting it. The lasting memorial. What's the lasting memorial of the Jewish people? Passover. Passover. Thank you. Uh, should have asked that better or had some more cheat sheets on the board. I needed that when I was going through school. Uh, third thing is that there was the start of something which we didn't really get into, so we're going to pick up that in a moment. But the Lord delivered his people that they might go on a journey. And so this was the start of a long journey. So there was the end of the Lord's patience. There was the beginning of a lasting memorial. And there was the start of a long journey. We saw that the themes here were judgment declared as God said, this is it. This this all. This is the end of all of this. And then there was mercy received by the people of God as they received deliverance and Passover was celebrated. And then, finally, start of a long journey. That is a promise fulfilled, a promise that was first made over 400 years earlier. But God kept his promise. And here it was exactly as God had said. Now, we're kind of in the second point B here because we did point one and we actually did point B. But I'm going to pick up just a few things to get your head going here. And and having Exodus open will will assist you with that in chapter 12. Through the institution of the Passover, the Lord again makes a distinction between the Egyptians and those who are being judged. And the Israelites are shown mercy by God here in this second point. He's establishing a memorial that would be celebrated in all generations that would follow. And this memorial involves several things. If you look at your text in chapter 12 of Exodus, it would require, verses 3 through 11, a substitutionary death, which meant that in verses 3 and 5, if you look at that, there was a lamb, and the lamb had to be what? Without blemish. And that lamb would have to be killed. He was taken on the 10th day. And then on the 14th day of the month, the lamb would be killed. Do you remember what time the the, uh, the lamb would be killed? Twilight. Twilight for the Jews is somewhere between 3 and uh, 6 o'clock. So so it was that time as the sun was setting. That happened, just happened to correspond in New Testament times to what? The death of Christ. Okay? Okay. The death of Christ. He was crucified beginning at 9 o'clock. He was on the cross for six hours till 3 o'clock, the time of the evening sacrifice and prayers. The exact time. So these are amazing parallels. Now, not only that, by the way, that twilight time is verse 6. Come to verse 7. The blood of that lamb 
would be placed on the lintels and the doorposts of the houses of the Hebrew people, where inside a meal then would be prepared to be eaten while members of the household would be ready and dressed for travel. Isn't that a strange way to eat a meal? That's verse 11, by the way. And then finally, the memorial was going to have a name to it. It was called Passover in remembrance of what the Lord would do that night. Listen carefully in verses 12 and 13, and we're going to read that in a moment. In passing, Passover, passing through the land of Egypt, and then passing over the houses that were under the markings of the blood of the Lamb. Let me read verses 12 and 13 for you. If you have that open, follow along. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land. Here is the prediction of the twelfth plague, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. There's his signature on it. You've got God's word. This is going to happen. The blood will be a sign for you on your houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will Pass over you, and no plague shall befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So, this word he passed on to the elders then of Israel in verses 21 to 27. And they were told that this was to become a memorial day, verse 14 of chapter 12. It was to be a statute observed forever. Verse 24. So the Passover was to be remembered, obeyed, and taught by the Israelites to their children so that they might know the Lord who saves. In verses 27, 28 of your chapter, they might know. And it says in verses 27, 28, and the people bowed their heads and worshiped. And then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, they did so they did. You hear that redundancy there? Why, why, if you've already said they did it, why do you have to say it again? Because this is absolute obedience to God. The people were wanting to do just what God had said. This should be our hearts. I don't know about you. But I want to do what God wants me to do. I don't always do that. But here was an absolute commitment to that. And Hebrews 11 says of this that that this was an act of faith. But not only an act of faith, it's an act of faith based on the act of faithfulness of God. God was faithful to bring deliverance and therefore We act on faith as well. Here's Hebrews 11, 28. By faith, he, Moses, and representing all the people, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. So they believed God, they obeyed God, they worshiped God. And that's the very same things we should do in our walk with Christ in his kingdom. So now, I'm going to set those notes aside as we get going on our next thing, and that's point C here. So if you're taking notes, this is, we're in that last point, and uh, the start of a long journey. So under the, the light of the full moon, and we're in chapter 12, verse 29, death stalks the land. 
And it says there, the verse is for you, at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Uh, here was the deadliest and the most devastating plague of the ten that were given. Psalm 78 gives us a vivid description of what was happening that evening. It says, He let loose on them, that is, on the Egyptians, his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt. By you say that by the way, you say that's that's brutal. That's just brutal. Well, it is hard, it's awful. But I remind you that God is a God of love, mercy, grace. And goodness. And he had been. And his patience had been long with Pharaoh and with the Egyptians. But God is also a God of holiness and justice and wrath and judgment. And it all depends upon how you treat God's son. What had God said? Israel is my son. How did they treat? How did Pharaoh treat God's son Israel? Judgment was now coming. And the same is true today. It's what you do with God's Son, who now in the person of Jesus Christ has come to redeem us. You reject His Son, and you invite the wrath of God on your life. That is a fearful thing. The Scripture says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And that's what's happening to Egypt. So, Every home, think of this now. Try to put yourself in the situation. Every home was awakened with this visitor, even Pharaoh's. And it says there in verse 30, And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Suppose this morning you were awakened, say, at 5.30, and you thought you heard a scream. And then there was another scream, and then another. And you got up and looked out the window, and you didn't know what was going on. And the firstborn of your house was lying motionlessly in the bed, dead. What kind of scene would that be? This is horrific. Can we, any of us really imagine the horror of this? And the irony is, of the story at this point, that the man who swore that he would never let the Hebrews go, the man who had said that he would kill Moses the next time he saw him, cries out for Moses in the darkness of that moment, and he delivers a far different message to Moses. Look here on the second bullet. 
And Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry. There it is again. We've heard that a couple of times now in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. And so Pharaoh responds, up, go out from among my people. Both you and the people of Israel, first mentioned, by the way, a pharaoh of the people of Israel as a nation, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take flocks and your herds as you have said. Be gone. Your terms. Finally, the man is driven to his knees. Okay. Okay. Enough. Everything you say, just just get out of here. Notice how three times there, go out, go, be gone. And Pharaoh is not the only one who is crying out for the people. Oh, wait a minute. I left out one thing. Something that Deborah asked last week. So he said, get out of here, get out of here. Oh, oh. before you go, would you bless me? Could you give me a blessing, please? I don't know that he said it that way. Probably more like, bless me! The, uh, I thought in my mind, bless you? I, when I was growing up, there was a phrase. I don't know if it's used anymore or not. Someone got blessed out. <laughs> That's an old southern term, I guess. When you got fussed at, you were blessed out. I guess you were out of blessings. Maybe that's what it was. I'm not sure the origin of all of that. But would you, come on, would you have blessed Pharaoh? Would you have given him a blessing at that point? There is a, a great scene in Fiddler on the Roof. Any of you have seen, gone to, watch the movie Fiddler on the Roof? You know, you know what that's about. Uh, the request here of Pharaoh is very reminiscent of the fiddle of the roof in the one scene where a young Russian Jew asked the town rabbi if there was a blessing even for the czar. I mean, that, that was a tough question because the czar was their oppressor, and yet surely God must have some kind of blessing for everyone. And the rabbi thought about it for a moment, and then he said, May the Lord bless the czar and keep him far away from us. That's the kind of blessing that Israel was looking for with Pharaoh at this moment. And Pharaoh wasn't the only one calling for the, for the blessings or, or calling for the Israelites to leave. Look at verse 33 here. It's on the second point. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we're going to all die. That's my paraphrase. We're all going to die in this. They were terrified of the wrath of God. And God's people were ready. They were ready to leave. Remember, they, why had God told us to get dressed for this meal and stand up and have our walking stick? Why did God want us to do it that way? Because he knew what was coming. And they did not leave Indy empty-handed. The Egyptians loaded them with gifts of silver, gold, many other possessions. Chapter 11, chapter 12. Why was that? Why did they get loaded up like that? Notice verse 36. 
the Lord had given the people favor, grace, in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now, there is an interesting verse over in Psalm 106, verse 46, that says that God gave the Egyptians pity on the Israelites for their captivity and what they had done to them. So they were moved with compassion over what had happened here. Israel would therefore leave, second bullet point, more as, as conquerors. They were already lining up like companies of warriors, and now here's all the booty, all the plunder. From the, from the city, from the people, as they give that back over to them. And there were, there were many others, not just Jews, though, leaving. I mean, everybody seems like wants to get out. There was a mixed multitude, bullet three, that followed, possibly those who had come to fear the Lord in all of this. Verse 38 describes that. There were people who were beginning to see that the Lord is God, and they feared God, and they said, we're going to go with these people. And so the journey began, notice here verse 37, with 600,000 men besides women and children. Uh, if, if they were 50 abreast, it would, it would uh, comprise a column of, of, uh, that was 10 miles long. That's a lot of people. I figured that out. They, it may have been wider than that because... 50 people wide is not that many. You put it on a football field, just the actual playing field, that would be one person for every yard, you know, three. three. It wouldn't be COVID, you know, you'd have to go two steps. But at least you, you could have them that part. So you could actually get 100 people, cut everything halfway down here. But I don't know how all they marched and how wide the column was, but it was staggering. Now, all of this is fulfilling a promise. Promise fulfilled. Remember, that was our point. Promise fulfilled made centuries before. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 15. Notice the details in Genesis 15, hundreds of years before. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain. When God says something, you can know for certain it's true. And it's going to be fulfilled. He told Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. Know for certain. Here it is. Here's the certainty. Here's the exclamation point. They went in as servants. They're coming out as sons of God as he delivers them from their misery. Now back to Exodus 12. So on that day, now look at this, verse 41. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out of the land of Egypt. It was a day of death and life. It was a day of sorrow and joy, a day of judgment and mercy, a day of defeat and triumph. God had triumphed. Moses remembered it this way, verse 42, when he wrote, it was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. 
So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. I I, I love the phrasing of this, and I love the challenge to us. God was watching over them, and therefore they were to watch out for their lives to be obedient to what God had said, a night of watching. That's why in in some churches, anybody ever attended a watch night service? That's that, yeah. That's, That's what that was taken from, a night of watching before the Lord because something was about to happen here. And on verse 52, emphasized again, on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of Egypt by their host. The host there is by their armies, by, by their, 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 their divisions. So let me add a bit more color to this story because this is, this is uh, the story is told rather concisely in many ways. But we do find some some descriptions elsewhere that help us to try to imagine what it was like. And here is one of them in Numbers 33. They set out from Ramesses in the first day, uh, in, the, in the first month, on the 15th day of the first month, on the day after Passover, the people went out, of, went out triumphantly in the sight of the Egyptians while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn. Again, Put this in your mind, the dramatic contrast of people marching out and they're marching out in triumph with all the treasures and the people of Egypt are burying their treasures, their firstborn in the ground. That's cinematic. This is dramatic here. But further, another reflection, Psalm 105, verse 43. Those Psalms, 104, 105, 106, you're getting a lot of descriptions of things here under the inspiration of the Scripture, of the Spirit. So he, the Lord, brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. God's people in triumph, in joy, in singing. The Egyptians in death, in sorrow, in weeping. That's, that's incredible. So, let me draw this particular chapter to a conclusion before we, we enter on to the next. The uh, reality of all of this is we don't even have to try to put ourselves in their shoes. Because this is actually what we experience in our salvation. We live in a world of darkness It's waiting for the judgment and wrath of God to fall. And those who harden their hearts will know the wages of sin. What are the wages of sin? Death. Romans 6, 23. But God is merciful. And in His grace, He's provided a way to escape judgment. And it's through the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, 29. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It was Jesus who said, for those who are in this world, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know what the word way is? Hadas of exodus. I am that way out. 
I am the way of escape. I'm the way you get beyond the wrath of God to know the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now, let me give you something here from John L. Mackey in his commentary on Exodus. It's an excellent commentary in the Mentor series uh, produced in Europe. The Exodus from Egypt in the Old Testament is a paradigm of divine salvation. The primary feature of the narrative is the sovereignty of God's grace. Now he continues here. The Old Testament Passover has now been consummated in the self-offering of Jesus when Paul declared that Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Undoubtedly, Paul's use of Passover symbolism looks back to the Last Supper as a Passover meal in which Jesus presented himself as a Passover lamb who sheds blood, ensures that his people will escape the way out, the exodus, death to which their sin has condemned them. Paul then links the Passover with the Feast of Unleavened Bread in 1 Corinthians 5, 8, urging that what now corresponds to it is that believers live a life of holiness in sincerity and truth. Misery, deliverance, gratitude. This is our lives. This is the picture. And we're seeing here in Exodus So, they remembered what God had done for them. And for us, every Sunday is Memorial Day for the child of God. These people bowed in humble and grateful worship. Chapter 12, verse 27. Their hearts were filled with joy and singing in God's salvation. Psalm 105, 43. But let me here read something to you. This is a recitation of the Passover liturgy of the Jewish people. It's called the Haggadah. Those who celebrate together the Passover. Here is the challenge that's given to them. Look at this. Listen to this carefully. Therefore, we are bound to thank, praise, laud, glorify, exalt, honor, bless, extol, and adore him who performed all these miracles for our fathers and for us. He has brought us forth from slavery to freedom, from sorrow to joy, from mourning to festivity, from darkness to great light, from bondage to redemption. Let us then recite before him a new song. Hallelujah. I read that and I'm almost embarrassed that I'm not as enthusiastic about worshiping God as they are in worshiping in the Passover. Is this not a challenge to us? Do we not have more to celebrate than just simply looking back at something that happened centuries ago? That was the foreshadowing of what Christ would do. Him who is the way, the truth, and the life for us. And so he's delivered us from the wrath of God and brought us into the kingdom of his dear son. So praise God. Hallelujah for what God has done for us. So, uh, you know, it's at this point, 10 o'clock. I still got 30 minutes. I've not, we've just gotten through the first part. What we have now, there's a section I've preached through Exodus before many centuries ago. 
And when I preached through that, this next what I'm about to give you, I, I didn't even use in a sermon series. Because at that point in my Christian life, I thought, okay, these are more details and things about Passover and other things. It's a reiteration. There's instruction. There's transition here. So, so probably is not a lot here, right? I don't, I don't need to spend another sermon on something like this. But when you're teaching something, you're forced to go through, and it's good. So as we transition to the 10th plague of Egypt and, and her gods, there's some loose ends but these are important matters. I want, to, I want to emphasize this. I never realized the importance of some of these things that had to be addressed and tied together in preparation for the people to go and serve. These are things they had to do on, on that night, to be sure, and understand that night, because some of them are instructions. These essentials are listed and explained in two sections here in front of us. The next few verses, chapter 12, verses 43 to 50, and then Exodus 13, 1 to 16, and involve basically three things, two of which are, are linked. The first is Passover, even though we've heard about Passover. There's more to know about the Passover. Who can partake of the Passover? What qualifies you to partake of the Passover? What qualifies you to partake of the Lord's table? All right, there's some important things to remember. And then, there's the consecration, the dedication of the firstborn, and the redemption of the firstborn. And this is linked with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So these are things that are important. Let's take a look then, first of all, at the matter of regulation for the Passover. This is now the third time that laws concerning Passover have been presented or added to. And my question to myself was, okay, why does Passover keep coming up? It must be really important. Right? It was. Just like the cross is really important. Particularly the requirements of those who could or could not participate. This was important for that very moment because of what would happen on that very night. You did not want to partake uh, unworthily in that evening. And the regulation would stand for generations to come. So there were three classes of people who were prohibited from celebrating the Passover. You know, we, we know it, of course, as a Jewish holiday, so we understand some of this, but it but becomes a little more intricate than that. First of all, there was the foreigner. And if you're looking at verse 44, you will see that. The foreigner here, I put the Hebrew word up for whoever needed that. This is an alien, a stranger. That is, he's from the pagans. He's, he's from other places. He has not embraced Yahweh. He does not know Yahweh. He does not have a relationship with Yahweh. So this is the alien stranger, someone from the pagans. Then, if you look in the next verse, verse 45, the word foreigner is used again. But it's not the same Hebrew word. So there's another class of foreigners here, a sojourner, a resident alien distinguished from a native citizen, a mere lodger, someone who's come in and living among them. Okay, so you, you moved into the community and and, uh, and and you're not part of that. It would be kind of like going to a European city where there is a ghetto. The ghetto in our terminology doesn't have very good, good terminologies, but the ghetto was where people would live together in community and the Jews had ghettos. And, and we have been through Jew Jewish ghettos in other cities in Europe. And so we see this. So there would be someone, though, maybe move in who was not Jewish into those communities. Well, here, 
This is someone who was a mere lodger, came in to be part of them. And if they're just there, oh, can we come to your party? Can we come to the Passover? Can we do? No, you, you can't come to our Passover. You can come to other things. You can come to our house, visit. You can't come to the Passover. You're prohibited because you're not one of us in that sense. And then the third was a hired worker. That is a hireling, a man of wages. Maybe it was for just a day. Maybe it was for longer. He's a mercenary. Many of these usually came from other countries. So they would hire people to come in and help them and so on. They were prohibited. They were outsiders. They were not insiders, if I can use those terms that maybe are not as thought of as well today. But a slave... Here, we're talking about a bondservant. And again, it's a different word than all the other words used. A bondservant attached to a household who was circumcised, who embraced the Lord and his covenant could partake. So your household could partake because you were under the covenant and had been circumcised. That was an absolute requirement. You'll see why in a minute. Now, in verse 46... There's also this emphasis on one house. Now, that didn't mean that 600,000 had to come to one house. That would be a party. But this means that the family needed to be together. Or the, if a family didn't have enough to feed, if, if a lamb was way too much, they would bring another family in. But they all had to be in, in the house and in one house for each family for this is connected with the whole lamb in this one house as opposed to dividing the lamb up. Oh, you don't have enough lamb? We'll send some lamb over to you. No, no, you couldn't do it. A lamb had to be sacrificed for each household. So that was the whole point there. And it was to be communal. It was to be a gathering of people celebrating this. There's so many parallels we could draw to our communion service, the Lord's table. And then further note that in preparing and eating the lamb... Verse 46b, this just jumped off the page. You shall not break any bones. And this would not be required in eating a regular meal. Uh, for instance, if you had a turkey on Thanksgiving and you found the wishbone, which we found, you know, who's going to pull the wishbone? Who's going to win that? And one of the teenagers wanted it for himself so he could be sure he won. So he did it. Uh, anyway. All superstition. What comes to mind, though, uh, here when you see this about bones not being broken? Any, anybody have an idea of a passage in the New Testament that might speak of this? All right. John 19. Look what it says. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, speaking of the three men who were crucified, and the, of the other who had been crucified with him, with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus... And saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Why didn't he do it just, just for fun? Why, why did they pause? Why did they notice? Why were his legs not broken? But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water, proof of death. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. And John quotes Exodus. Right here our passage. Not one of his bones will be broken. Now why was that? Because Jesus, the Son of God, without blemish, 
was the perfect Passover lamb for our sins. Just a few little words there in Exodus fulfilled in the death of Jesus Christ. The allowance for a stranger or sojourner to eat Passover was only available to those, therefore, who would come under the covenant, bear the covenant sign of circumcision, verses 48 and 49 that you see there in front of you. And so even outsiders, not Israelites, were welcome if they committed themselves to the Lord of the Passover. And this is reiterated again in Numbers chapter 9, Numbers chapter 15. So there was provision for truth to go out to the Gentiles. And they could come in, but they must come in as those who were resting, trusting in Yahweh. And all of this agrees with the original instructions given to Abraham centuries before about the the matter of the circumcision and so on. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in the house and he who is bought with your money, bought with a price, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. So, These were the instructions regarding Passover that were so important. A few very key details in there we saw. But the other side is, the next issue, chapter 13, verses 1 through 16, is the consecration of the firstborn and the feast of Passover. Verses 1 and 2, thus says the Lord, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Now, when we read that, and, and we say, why is that happening? It's because the firstborn, all the firstborn belonged to God. It was his by right. And that's why, as a sovereign creator and Lord over all creatures, man and beast, the tenth plague takes place. Everyone, firstborn, was to be dedicated to God. Those who had not accepted him were dedicated to God through death. Their lives were taken. But what about the Jewish firstborn? Well, they had to be set apart. They had to be dedicated. They had to be consecrated to the Lord because God had spared them through the blood, but yet they belonged to God in a very special way. So, the the word, by the way, here, uh, holy, dedicated, is the Hebrew word kadash, a very strong word. It means to be holy, to be set apart for something. Now, does this have any significance to us and the New Testament Believer. All right, I'm going to quote here a sidelight from John Curid. And I, I was I was I loved this, so I just want to preserve it rather than talk about it. In the New Testament, Jesus, Mary's firstborn son, is set apart or sanctified according to the commands laid down in Exodus. And when the days for purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what the law, what is said in the law of the Lord. Luke even quotes 
By the way, Exodus 13, 2 here in that description. Did you notice that elsewhere? Christ is called the firstborn among many brethren. He became the firstborn for us. He took on the curse for us. He took on the wrath of God for us as the firstborn. Now, he continues. Also, in the New Testament, believers are counted as firstborn by their virtue of their union in Christ. It is the church of the firstborn that is set apart from God. You heard just a couple of weeks ago, our pastor, maybe it was a little longer than that, quote Hebrews 12, 23, the church of the firstborn. You ever wonder why you're called that? You're the firstborn in Christ. You're the first fruits of Christ. And in fact, the name in the New Testament art writers often give to Christians is saints. And saints means set apart, consecrated, dedicated. Here, here's where we find our first identity in the book of Exodus. In So Christians have a special set apart relationship with their creator. We are the firstborn of Israel. I could say the new Israel, the full Israel. That's good. I love that. But further. Now, in connection with their leaving Egypt was the command to remember this day. That's verse 3 of chapter 13. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread was to be celebrated. Celebrated as remember of their uh, remembrance of their coming out as well as being brought out. Look at verses 3 and 4, and you see here, there is, he says, you are coming out. Okay, yeah, we're coming out. We did it. We're coming out. We're leaving Egypt. We did it. No, 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 no. Don't ever forget, you were brought out. You're coming out, but you were brought out. It was not your doing. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. So they were being delivered here in a special way. Um, and when they entered Canaan, second bullet, the land that had been promised to them by God, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was to be observed for seven days. So this is talked about in verses 5 through 7. Be sure you celebrate this every day. It must be unleavened bread. You're looking back. You're remembering your deliverance. And they were to recall and tell their sons what God had done on that day of deliverance from Egypt. Verses 8 and 9. They were to keep this uh, every uh, if this ever before or between their eyes and to be in their mouths year after year. Um, have you ever seen Orthodox Jews and how they dress? Have you ever seen them? Uh, they, they, uh, I care for a home of a Jewish person and they have uh, something when you go through their door, they have something on the side of the door. It's the Shema. It's from uh, the Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's a copy of the law. The Lord our God is one and so on. Uh, but some of the Orthodox wear a leather strap with a little piece of wood here. And inside it, inside that wood, is Exodus 13, 1 through 17, and other verses in which they are remembering how God delivered them out of Egypt. So here it says they were to keep this ever before or between their eyes uh, and be in their mouths year after year. Now, the interesting thing is that uh, the, the ancient Jews who came out of Egypt apparently did not wear anything on their, between their eyes. Okay? 
This is speaking more figuratively. It's to be ever before your eyes. You're to be ever seeing this truth. You're ever, to be embracing this truth, knowing this truth, celebrating this truth that you have been delivered. And then in the setting apart, all that first opens the womb was to continue after uh, possessing the land. So the firstborn continued to be set apart as well. You didn't forget that. There always had to be a redemption for the firstborn. And why all these offerings, verses 14 to 16, specify this was a visible reminder of God's strong hand, his deliverance from the stubborn hand of Pharaoh, whom God judged. Because life only comes by way of redemption. And therefore, consecration and offerings for the firstborn were made for redemption. See that word in 1315? Mark that in your Bibles. That's the first appearance in the scripture of this particular word for redeem. Though similar ideas have already been expressed, some understanding of redemption, but here it's been expressed uh, probably in the best, strongest Hebrew word you could choose. This is their word of redemption, pada. So, speaking of redemption. Again, I'm going to quote Curate. I, I, he was extreme. I thought extremely good on this, and I did not want you to miss this. The redemption of the firstborn in Israel by the blood of a lamb is a pointer to the fact the Christian has been saved by the blood of Christ. The latter's work is also one of a substitutionary payment as he acts as a sacrificial lamb. In 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, the apostle, speaking to the church, comments, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb with uh, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And then the author of the epistle to the Hebrews speaks of Messiah's work in a similar fashion, quoting, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, that is Christ's own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So Christ, our high priest, entered once for all and offered the sacrifice for our sins. And... He says it should further be observed that the act of redeeming the firstborn in Israel was a mere shadow of the work of Christ. The result of the tenth plague was a deliverance of Israel that was physical, earthly, temporal. But the redemptive work of Christ in his death is much greater. It is also eternal and spiritual. Thus, the Old Testament act of redemption reaches its apex and its fulfillment in the work of the great Redeemer in the New Testament. Hallelujah for that. All right, so we have now made it through that transition section. Any questions or comments there? Yes, Lamont. Okay, you want that quote again? You want to see that? Uh, But here's his quote again. In the New Testament, Jesus, Mary's firstborn son is set apart, sanctified, according to the commands laid down in Exodus. Here's the quote. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, and here's the quote, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy, set apart. We could say saint in that sense. He is 
He is a saint in the sense of being made holy to the Lord and to offer sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord. So Luke 2, 22 to 24. Luke even quotes the verse there as he, as he goes on to say. Okay. You want the further quote? Okay, okay, yeah. All right, so he continues. Also in the New Testament, believers are accounted as firstborn by virtue of their union with Christ. It is the church of the firstborn that is set apart to God. Hebrews twelve twenty three. So we're the church of the firstborn. We, we are the, those who are born of God, uh, John chapter 3, and uh, in John chapter 1 also, talking about we are born of God, and we are the firstborn identifying with Christ. In fact, the name New Testament writers often give to Christians is saints. Romans 1, 7, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, Ephesians 1, 1. That word in Greek literally means the set-apart ones. Thus, Christians are in a special set-apart relationship with their Creator. We are the firstborn of Israel. That is, we are redeemed. We were unholy. We were sinners. The wages of sin is death. We are made holy by the blood of Christ, the firstborn of all creation, and He has made us the church of the firstborn. Does that help? Okay, I'll send that to you if you would like that. Okay. Okay, other questions over here. We've just got a couple of minutes. I think it was interesting uh, in the earlier, the first section, when, when the Israelites were redeemed, they were treated as conquerors of the booty. I think it's interesting to develop this idea with the Christians. We, we are more than conquerors. I just think it's another parallel that's very interesting. It is. This is why one of the reasons why Rick and I, we talked about Exodus, and we thought Exodus would be so rich for everyone because, you know, we think of the Old Testament. In fact, there's a, a very famous preacher right now who said, I think we ought to just forget the Old Testament. Just, just do away with the Old Testament. We're, we're New Testament believers. Well, all of our connections are back to the old. And here is the perfect shadow and picture of what happened. And how, how were they saved in the Old Testament? By works? No. By faith. Believing these things. Now, going to your point. Yeah, the, the conqueror image is used several times in the book of Exodus there in chapters uh, uh, 10, 11, and 12. And there's this idea of how the Lord was going to march them through. They marched as an army wherever they went. They were conquerors, but only through God, just as we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So, yeah, there's some beautiful imagery there. It's good. Fred, do you have any comments on any of this? Okay. okay. Yeah. They spoiled the Egyptians. They did. This, these were spoils. Yes, yes. And they did. In fact, what built the tabernacle? The spoils. <laughs> okay? But that, that's another series. <laughs> All right? Good. Thank you. That, that, that's great to point that out. And I was also moved by that, by his quote, thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, we're more than conquerors. We're right there in Romans 8. Okay? And so what can separate us from the love of God? They couldn't be separated from the love of God. God pulled them out of that world. Other comments, questions? All right. 
Well, thank you. I mean, there was a lot today, okay? So I think next week we can settle a little bit because it's the last lesson and we are going to actually get them out. No, we aren't. God is going to get them out. And we're going to see what happens here at the Red Sea, at the party in the Red Sea. What you want? Father, thank you for this, these moments we've had together to look into the book of Exodus and see the pictures foreshadowing all that we enjoy too. We, we have that redemption, the forgiveness of sin according to the riches of his grace, not our works. And just as Israel didn't have to lift a finger, God did it with his mighty hand, his mighty arm, and brought redemption to them. And where we could not conquer our own sin, he has conquered sin and the wrath of God. He's taken upon himself that we might live as his set-apart, consecrated, holy people, as saints before God. Bless us now as we go to this next service. You've delivered us, and so we go forth in gratitude to worship you in this next service. May we all be saying hallelujah. In your name we pray, amen.